All right, if you have your Bibles, get ready. We're going to be going on the Bible bus tour this morning. Um, hey, there's no shame in going to the beginning of your Bible and, and checking the index to find out where we are. Um, I, I, I encouraged you to grab a Bible during worship. If you didn't get a chance to do that, it's no shame in the game to get one now. Even if you raise your hand, Toby will throw one at you. Um, so we, we just came back from, um, again, I got my t-shirt on. This was our um, Southwest Pastors and Leadership Conference. And the theme this year was called Seasons of a Shepherd. And what they did was they got the, the different pastors that got arranged and that they chose to speak, different Calvary Chapel, most of them Calvary Chapel pastors from um, all around the United States. We had a pastor from um, Newark, New Jersey, Old Bridge, New Jersey, technically. We had a, a pastor from... Um, two different pastors from Colorado, one who pastors in Washington, Arizona, um, California, and, and, and different places all over the United States that they brought together. And they, they gave the pastors this theme, that, that the seasons of a shepherd, and asked them to pick a different season of ministry that, that you go through and, and, and a psalm and teach uh, uh, the season of a shepherd through the psalms. Now, this idea of seasons is whether you're in ministry or whether you're just in life as a Christian or, or even a non-Christian for that matter, you, it, it's relatable to everybody. Amen? Everybody say a season. We, we all go through seasons. I think, you know, for me personally, you know, I used to look at life like maybe, you know, that these seasons were, sometimes they last longer than, than other times. It was just something I was going through on that day. But maybe it's not something for a day. Maybe it's a, it's a season that we go through. I moved here from, um, grew up in Southern California and, and never understood the true concept of a season. To us, a season in California is, is hot and beautiful or cool and beautiful. But that, those are the two seasons that we have in Southern California. Now, I don't remember, honestly, I don't remember a Christmas day or a Thanksgiving my entire life as a child that it wasn't 70, 70 75 degrees on Thanksgiving and Christmas. Like, I thought that was normal. That it was like 75 degrees with the sun shining on Christmas Day. Like, what do you mean? White, white Christmas? What does that mean? It wasn't until I, I got baptized in, in coming to Utah that I experienced for the first time four seasons. You know, and my favorite season of all here being in here in Utah is without a doubt the fall. It, it is beautiful here in the fall. I can remember some friends came up on like our first year here and we took them up Little Cottonwood Canyon and... It was absolutely, to, to this day, it's breathtaking. It really is, right? If you've been up there in that time of the year, the, tree, the, the leaves are changing. They have millions of different species of trees up there. Just kidding. That's what it feels like anyways. Um, millions of trees, maybe not species, but the, 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 they're yellow and red and orange and still green and uh, just beautiful. And then the next year, some friends came up, and I was so excited to take them up there. And some friends said they just went up Cottonwood Canyon, and it was all that and a bag of chips. And so we get up there that day, and I think I'm, like, in the wrong canyon. I'm, like, driving through the canyon. I'm, like, there's no leaves on any of these trees, and it's all brown. That fast, within that week, all them beautiful leaves fell off in a week, and it went from beautiful to brown in a week. But, you know, God, God has laid out for us the four seasons. And, and, and we have spring and summer and winter and fall seasons. And, and life is that way. Now, now I'm not just making something up out of a self-help book. Or, this, this is Bible, you guys. So I want to start by um, something that King Solomon taught us out of Ecclesiastes. Now, this whole season of a shepherd, what I'm going to do today, and again, please bear with me. I'm going to be a little all over the place today. I'm going to try to timing. It's hard to time a message like this. I'm going to try to keep it concise. Um, 
And it's not normally what I do, but um, we're, we're going to go through, and I just want to take you through the eight different sessions and eight different pastors, the season that they chose, the scripture that they chose, and, and a little something that stood out in the conference to, to, to me and maybe the guys that we went with. Hey, and, and let's uh, praise God, you guys. Let, let's give the Lord a hand for me, please, um, with me, please, for, for this. You gave the Lord a hand for you even knew what it was about. You guys are right. You guys are holy people up in here. Like, Jesus, I don't even know what it's about, but if it's about Jesus, yeah. Um, we, we had six guys from this church whose lives were changed on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday and, and will not be the same. We, we went down. We took a time out of our lives. All these guys work full-time jobs. They had to take to vacation and time off of work and money and sacrifice and leave family to go and say, God, I just want to go and seek you for a couple days. We drove 12 hours in a minivan with six guys. Um, <laughs> to Tucson, Arizona. Good thing when we got there, it was 85 degrees and the sun was shining. So, um, and, and, you know, just spent all day on Monday from morning until night, all day on Tuesday, half a day on Wednesday, just growing and letting God minister to us. We did have a break. Our team got together. We prayed. We prayed for you guys. We prayed for our church. Uh, we prayed for each other and just what God was doing and some of the healing that took place in the hearts. And so praise God for the, the fruit that, uh, that abounds to you guys that, that, that sent us and let us go. And so, again, we thank you, and uh, we're excited about what God's doing. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is where I'm going to start. And, again, I'll mostly be in the Psalms, but I'm going to be all over the place today. For your convenience, I've already changed the clock. I, I should have left it at 1030. I already moved it to 1130 because then if I look at that clock over and over again, I'm like 1030, 1045, 11, 1130, 12, 1230. I could preach for two hours. Oh, shoot, I didn't hit start. I got my timer and it tells me how long the sermon is. And I look at it every once in a while. And now it's going. I just started it, though. So I guess that first two minutes was bonus time. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter three lays out this idea that, that we, we go through seasons of life. And I think, again, you guys would have to agree. Verse 1, chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season. Again, everybody say a season. A time for every purpose under heaven. So according to God, there's an, a, a laid out time for every purpose under heaven. And Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes, the wisest man that ever lived, a time to be born and a time to die. That's a tough one. A time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Unless it's dealing with your wife then there's no time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. So the different seasons of life. Now, we're going to start, you guys, if you want to beat me to the punch, we're going to start in Psalm 22. But life is full of seasons. Now, we, um, we, we have to find victory in every season. And I just want to give you the, 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 the summary first of the entire pastor's conference. And then I'm going to try to spend the next, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes illustrating this idea. But um, it's okay no matter what season you're going through. Somebody say, it's okay. So we're going to talk about seasons of doubt, 
seasons of depression, seasons of labor, seasons of praise, seasons of victory, seasons of defeat. And and in whatever season that that you're going through, it's okay. It's okay. That's the message is that. But here's the thing, that, that there's victory in every season. And no matter what, here's the lesson of life in a nutshell is that if you can find victory in whatever season that you're in by trusting the Lord and seeking God in every season. Something terrible is going on in your life, but I will trust in the Lord. But God is good and God's mercy is is everlasting. And that God's faithfulness and loving kindness is better than my life. And, and, And no matter what season we're in, that, that we learn to trust God through that season. So this, so, so we're going to, again, just, just go through them. You know, the harvest season would seem to be the, the season that we would all want to be in all the time, right? Um, Lydia's dad was a, uh, a wheat farmer in central Kansas. Their, their family um, farmed a section of land, which is a big, big piece of land for a, a home farm you know, for a family farm and, and they were, they, they, they had cows and, and mostly wheat were wheat farmers. I'm, I was born in, and raised in, in, in South central Los Angeles, just a little South of South central Los Angeles. And, you know, in the, in a concrete jungle and no concept of farming or of, of harvest or, um, although I had some family in, in, in Kansas and Kansas city and in Wichita and, and that was about my, my best exposure to that. But when I first went to Bible college and all of Pastor Gerald's um, examples were about farm stories that, you know, I'm just like thug kid from the street, just, just Jesus, you know, freshly asked Jesus in my heart. And, you know, I didn't get it. You know, I thought his story would be better if it was like there was a gun sideways in the story. But it, it wasn't, it was about farm. But what you find is the Bible is full of farm stories and it's full of farm examples. And, and one of the things that I learned from my pastor is that harvest was such a joyful time of the year in in harvest. Everybody gets involved. His mom would be there and she would have her Lincoln continental and she would fill the back full of lunch. And everybody in the family of all ages would be out working the harvest and she would be at home and she'd bring lunch and she would barrel through the fields out there and she'd open the trunk and everybody would eat lunch and then they'd get back to work and and it was a joyous time of the year and you worked all year and harvest lasted about two weeks wheat harvest if that and and, and through the harvest that's how you got your entire year's wage and and if a hailstorm came or bad weather or a late freeze came you could lose an entire year's wage like that but, but yet there was so much joy in the harvest. And when we think of seasons and the seasons of a farmer particularly, that has to be the, the greatest season there is. But, but yet it's, it's such a small part of what a farmer really does and what we really do in life, right? In order to get to that harvest, what do you do? Do you, do you like go to bed July 1st and wake up June 1st and go out and cut the wheat? Obviously not, right? You know, you know what Gerald did, Lydia's dad did on Labor Day growing up? He didn't, true story. He got married with 21. He, at 21 years old, after he was married, he found out what Labor Day was really like. When he was 20 years old, he really believed that Labor Day, because this is what his dad told him growing up, that Labor Day was a day that they gave you off school so you could pick rocks out of the field and that you could work. And so his dad, when he was five years old, his dad would drive him 
out out to a place in the somewhere on the farm where he was by himself, drop him off for hours and hours at a time so he could work and pick up rocks at five years old. Can you imagine? You millennials have no idea. And guess what? Check it out, you guys, young people. His dad didn't even let him take his iPod with him. But I don't know, it has nothing to do with my notes or my story or nothing. I didn't, tell, I, I didn't know where that came from. All right, sorry. We, we don't have time to digress today. We got tons and tons to get through. So the first season, the first pastor at the conference went through was a season of doubt. And, and he said something that was, you know, that I wrote down because it was so shocking to me. But he said, even Jesus had doubt. And, and my first thought was like, blasphemy. What are you talking about? Jesus didn't doubt. And, and then he explained. And now listen, whether, whether Jesus... He, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all ways possible as you and I so that he would have sympathy. We have a great high priest who, who's, who's been tried in every way that you and I will ever be tried in so that he will have sympathy for us, our great high priest. And upon the cross, Jesus cried out in one of his seven last statements upon the cross. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so Jesus experienced the temptation at the very least of doubt in his life. And he went through it. For a Jewish um, rabbi to quote the first verse of a psalm was a very common way. And and to this day, for for Jewish teachers to teach their students that if they quote the first chapter, the first verse of a psalm, that the student is then supposed to go and read that psalm. And so Jesus quoting the first verse of Psalm 22 on the cross is telling all of the people in the audience to go read Psalm 22. What do you find in Psalm 22? You find an exact description of the crucifixion and the death that Jesus would pay on the cross written a thousand years before Jesus would hang on the cross. 700 years before crucifixion was ever invented, the psalmist wrote this psalm. And Jesus calls those in attendance when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Back to Psalm 22 to read it. And it is word for word a prophecy of what Jesus went through on the cross. When, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, as you know, two, two major details. Jesus prayed for, um, I'm sorry, Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Jesus, the Bible says, and this is another one. Like when the pastor said Jesus doubted, and I went, like, okay, I'm not going to take a minute, but I'm going to get with you. And, and then when, when the Bible says that Jesus was stressed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's, that's the word the, the, the King James Version, New King James Version uses. How is God stressed? How is Jesus stressed? But it says he was so perplexed that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. It says that, that in his condition was, was, was to the point where God had to send an angel from heaven to minister to Jesus. Have you ever been in a position where you were so stressed and perplexed that the blood vessels on your skin on the outside were beginning to burst and you were sweating great drops of blood and God looked down from heaven and saw you in so much stress that he sent an angel to be with you to comfort you? That's some serious stress. That's some serious angst. And why did Jesus separate? You know, the Bible says that, and and, and I I can remember, I've had these debates, and it goes around in Christian circles, this idea that that God, as Jesus said here, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And and did, did God forsake his son? 
Did, did he turn his back on Jesus? Did he separate? Was there separation between the Father and the Son and the Trinity? Literal separation between God and Jesus upon the cross? We can debate. We're, we're not going to do it today. But at the very least, sin separates. You know what your sin does? It separates you from the presence of God. That's what sin does. God won't love you any less. He, 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 he'll be with you no wherever you are, but it breaks fellowship. It breaks um, unity. It breaks relationship. And our sin separates that relationship factor. And, and, and on this moment, God pours your sins and my sins and all the sins past and, and future upon Jesus. And he bore them on the cross and God nailed them to the cross. And for that moment, there was separation as, as God's wrath was being poured out on sin because sin separates. And Jesus bore that for us. And Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane was not sweating great drops of blood and having an angel minister to him because he was afraid of the physical beating that he was going to take place. How many of you guys seen the passion of the Christ? Loved it. Very well done. Nothing to the extent of what Jesus actually went through. As, as brutal and as violent as the movie was portrayed, it doesn't do it justice what he actually faced. The Bible tells us he was beaten beyond visage. That, that, that he was unrecognizable as a man. You, you couldn't have looked upon his face and his body. Jesus was beaten, the Bible tells us, and he suffered more in the flesh than any human being from history past to history future. Jesus faced it and knew he was going to face it. And he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's sweating great drops of blood and it has nothing to do with the physical beating that he's getting ready to take. Why then was he so stressed out? Why then was he sweating great drops of blood? One reason. He knew there was going to come this separation. As temporary as it was, as subtle as it was, there was going to be a separation between him and the Father, and it scared him to death. And if, if, if God could just impart that to you or me, just, just the idea of being for a second separated from the Father... And, and, and we would need an angel in heaven to come and minister to us. It's mind-blowing. And, that, and that's what happened to Jesus on the cross in Psalm 22. And he faced a season of doubt going through it. And so for you and for me, it, it's normal to face doubt. We're going to face doubt. Jesus dealt with it. He nailed it to the cross. And when you doubt, listen, God can handle your doubt. If you feel mad at God today, if you're angry at God today, if you're upset with God today, listen, he can handle it. Just tell him. Now, now you don't, sometimes pastors don't want to say that or you don't want to hear that in certain circles, you know, but how, why not? You can't lie to God. I'm really mad at him. Oh, Lord, I love you. I can't tell him, but I'm really, really, words I can't use in church. I'm really upset. He knows. He knows what's in your heart. Now listen, I'm, I'm not counseling, advising anybody to disrespect or be irreverent towards God. That's not the point. And that's the fear. But can you, in your reverence and in respectfully way, be honest with God and say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm hurt. I'm doubting. I'm upset. I, 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 I don't know, God. I don't know why, God. You, you, if that's how you feel, then tell God that. Don't give Satan a place, a foothold. Don't believe the lies. 
that, that, that are going to come, read the Word of God, know the truth and what God says to you. But yes, God can handle your doubt and you can share. That was the first pastor that shared with us about seasons of doubt. And then um, the next one was out of Psalm 90. I was going to read some of, of, of Psalm. Uh, you guys can circle these and write these down, but I want you to read. Actually, I'll just read it. Um, it's important. It's important. I was going to have you do it on your own, but you guys won't do it. And then you might not go to heaven again. And so just to be sure, uh, I want to read it. Verse chapter 22 of Psalm, and then we're going to go to Psalm 90 next. You can start turning there with one finger if you want. Um, this is the part where, where a thousand years before the cross, it, 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 it prophesies what Jesus was going to go through. In verse 14, it says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. It's one of the phenomenons of, of crucifixion. And whoever this mad, sadistic individual, Satan-possessed person who invented crucifixion, he was very good at his craft of, of torturing you. And you can go through as you read what crucifixion was designed to do and how the pain was de- designed to pain you to death. And most people on, on the cross would be on the cross for multiple days and eventually die from exposure in excruciating pain for as long as they could survive it. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaw. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Description of the cross. So the next one, the next season, and one of the seasons that we face in Psalms 90 is a season of praise. And so... um, Moses is the example, and Moses, um, Psalm 90 is a song of Moses, and this is the story that Moses writes, you know, and Moses' life is very interesting, but the neat thing is that, that Moses, in all of it, was a, was a worshiper of God. Now, you guys know, the cool thing about Moses' life to, to remember is that Moses' life breaks up into f- three perfect 40-year um, breakdowns. He was born and, and, and taken into Egypt as the, the grandson, the son, the, the Pharaoh's daughter. So he was a Pharaoh's son. He was second in command or third in command, if he had a brother, to be the next Pharaoh of Egypt. And for 40 years he lived, the Bible says, under the, the wisdom and the training of, of, of Egypt. Now, Egypt was the most technologically advanced society in all of human history, including today. The the Egyptians were so mathematically um, capable and genius that that it's... Today, they have phenomenons that we can't figure out. They they moved stones in ancient Egypt that we can't move today with super machinery. They they made... um, like our Washington Monument and um, that were so tall and thin, and then they moved them miles and miles away from where they were created. And there's no way you can do that without breaking them um, physics. Just the physics doesn't add up, but they figured it out. They made to one of the pharaohs in Egypt, they made a monument and, they, and, 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 and it was enclosed. And, and, and twice a year, the sun would go in through a, an opening and would hit the pharaoh's face that was inside the monument. And only twice a year would the sun hit the Pharaoh's face, once on his birthday and once on the day of his inauguration. 
And the two days were completely, they weren't exactly six months apart or they, they were just weird random days in the calendar year. And they were wise enough to figure out how twice a year on his birthday and on the inauguration, the sun would hit that, that object just perfectly to shine. And Moses was trained in all of that wisdom. When Moses came um, to 40 years old, he saw uh, an Egyptian um, hurting a Hebrew and he went and killed the Egyptian. Remember what Moses said? He said, I would have thought that they knew I was their savior. Careful, Moses. And then he fled. And for 40 years, he was a nobody where God retrained him and he was a shepherd, the lowest of of occupations um, that you could have. And for 40 years, he just became humble and tended sheep and, and lived a nobody obscure life. And at 80 years old, the Lord showed up to him in the form of a burning bush and called him to go back to Egypt. And now at this point in Moses' life, his, his attitude completely changed 40 years later being retrained by the Lord. And what did he say to, to God in the burning bush? He said, I can't even talk in front of people, Lord. You, should, you got the wrong guy. Maybe my brother, but not me. And then at 120, Moses dies. And from 80 to 120, he leads the nation of Israel, this broke, um, un, unappreciative, miserable people through a funeral march through the, the, the Judean wilderness for 40 years, waiting for him to die while they complain and murmur the whole time. And, and, and then after all that service to the Lord, he makes one little mistake at the end of his life. And God says, Moses, you can't go into the promised land. And you're like, no. God, you are tough. That's tough love. That seems harsh. But we know he got to go into the promised land. And given the choice, I'm sure Moses would have chose what he got, which was to be with Jesus and Elijah transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration in the Holy Land with, with the disciples there. And, and, and he got to go. But in Moses' life, he, he's facing a season of praise. And, and he records that for us in Psalms 90. So we're going to go through those seasons. The next pastor was uh, Will Graham. And uh, on, on the brochure, actually, they got it changed in the brochure, but on our, on our lanyards and on our stuff, it still had um, Skip Heitzig as the teacher for, for Monday night. And so Skip Heitzig, for whatever reason, had to scratch, and I was a little bummed out. You know, Skip's one of my favorite teachers, Calvary Chapel, Albuquerque. He's been around a long time, um, and he's one of the original guys that was with Chuck in the early days. And, um, and, and this guy, Will Graham, that I'd never heard of before, and I didn't really know who that was, is, is teaching. And so it turns out that this Will Graham that, that, that taught us on Monday night, it's the grandson of Billy Graham. So that was really cool. It's Franklin Graham's son. And, um, you know, so he had an interesting uh, uh, growing up. And, you know, he said that growing up as Billy Graham's grandson, everybody always asked him, you know, what's it like being Billy Graham's grandson? And he said, well, normal, I guess. I've never known anything any different. And, you know, that's, that's how I, and then they would always ask him, how is Billy? And he'd tell them, he's old. And they'd say, well, that's kind of rude. And he'd say, well, <laughs> rude or not, it's true. He'll be a hundred, Billy Graham will, will turn a hundred. In, in, in 2019, Billy Graham will turn a hundred years old. Next year, he'll be a hundred. He's 98 today, turns 99 and this year and a hundred next year. And, um, you know, and so he, he said that people then would often find out he was Billy Graham's grandson. And they would say, well, you know, the next question they would ask is, can we meet Billy Graham? Can you take me to meet Billy Graham? And Will, Will would tell him, well, 
I, I can't take you to meet Billy Graham because we're a Christian family. And they'd say, Christian family? What does that mean? I, well, I thought that would help our chances because you're a Christian family. He's like, nope, obviously you never read the Bible. We, I can't take you to meet my grandfather. We're, we're a Christian family. And they'd say, what do you mean by that? And he'd say, well, haven't you read the Bible? The way to the Father is through the Son. <laughs> Not the grandson. If you want to meet Franklin, I'm your man. And then he taught out of Psalm 19. You can turn there. And in Psalm 19, you know, what was really cool was, was um, Franklin Graham is, is not a part of Calvary Chapel. As a matter of fact, um, Billy Graham was one of the only people that I know of or one of very few people that has been very successful over an entire life of ministry of transcending all kinds of denominational lines. Billy Graham and the Billy Graham Association works with everybody. And it doesn't matter where you fit in in the denominational um, spectrum. They work and they work successfully with all different kind of churches. Now, the churches ourselves, we don't always work well together because of these whatever reasons, you know, doctrinal differences. And they do it wrong and we do it right kind of thing, you know. And so, um, but Billy Graham has been very successful and they have big crusades and they, you know, they have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people come and, and they support all the churches in the, in the communities and they send people to, you know, the churches in the area. And, and so they've worked with all over the world. And so here, Will Graham, a grandson of, of Billy Graham, come and tell a, a room of Calvary Chapel leaders and pastors that we, we should continue and we need to be teaching the word of God. You know, we, we've, I've been to Calvary pastors conference every year. And, 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 you know, when one of the Calvary guys gets up and tells us, Hey, you know, reminds us of the idea that we have to be teaching the word of God chapter by chapter, verse by verse, teaching the word of God. You think, Oh yeah, I've heard it. I've heard it a hundred times. And here we go again, another reminder. And, um, but to hear Franklin Graham tell us that, and then to say this about Calvary chapel, that he said worldwide, he said, I want to thank you, Calvary Chapel pastors and the Calvary Chapel movement, because Calvary Chapel has the best reputation and testimony worldwide of teaching the word of God. And that, to come from Will Graham was, was, a, was a, the best compliment we received all, all weekend. And, and it was it was powerful. And then he went on and he just began to, to sh- again, encourage and share us in, in the seasons of labor, in the seasons of life, of, of being and teaching the Word of God and studying the Word of God and, and delivering the Word of God. He gave us a, a, an illustration. He said, he asked us a question. In a football game, how many teams play in a football game? No. Three. Said everybody always says two, but he says actually there's three teams. There's the home team, there's the away team, and then there's the team of officials who all wear the same jerseys and call themselves a team and are on a team. And, and the officials on this team, it's their job to know and have the rule book. And they're there to make sure that the players on the field play according to the rules of football. And you know where I'm going with this. Well, well the Bible is your rule book, and the game is played according to the rules. And, and again, encouraging us and reminding us that society and culture and um, what's happening does not affect what's true. And, and that the word of God hasn't changed. The will of God hasn't changed. The purpose of God hasn't changed. Thank God we have the canon and it's complete. And, and, it's, and it's good and it's profitable for instruction, for correction, for doctrine. And, and to, that we have the word and use it as the, as the rule book 
for teaching and stay in the Word of God. Psalm 19. Did you guys turn there? Verse 7 says, The law, seven times, you're going to get um, in 7 through 11, seven different um, descriptions of the Word of God. You can underline them as you go through. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony, number two, of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, judging the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, much than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them is there is a great reward. And so he just warned us, in keeping the word of God, there is a great reward. And encouraged us and, and complimented us that we have a good reputation of, of being in the word and teaching the word. And the next is um, probably my, my favorite, one of my favorite sessions. I'll probably say it like three times, hoping you guys forgot the last two. I told you my favorite, but th- this one was really good. There were several that, that just stand out. And maybe for some of the other five guys that came from our church, there was a different one that stood out to them. But this one was particularly really powerful. Um, It's a season of, you guys ready? Brokenness. Everybody say brokenness. So the the pastor, um, he he went, uh, Lydia's dad knows him, and uh, and Pastor Gerald sat next to me in the conference, him and and our administrative pastor from our our home church, Joshua Springs, were there with us, and uh, sat next to Pastor Gerald. And and Pastor Gerald led a um, familiarization tour of, a pastor familiarization tour of the Holy Land of Israel, about 10 years ago, eight years ago, and where um, Gerald leads the tour and then all the, the other younger pastors can go and he, he'll teach them how to lead a tour to Israel. And so um, this pastor was on the tour with Pastor Gerald and Pastor Gerald said that, you know, of, of all the pastors that were there, he just, he never made an impression on Gerald. He didn't seem like he wasn't, you know, and and then when when he was done speaking, Pastor Gerald said, he looked at me and said, that's the best message I've ever heard. You know, and us pastors, we're pretty sensational. We sensationalize some things, I'm sure. But he said, that's the best message I've ever heard. That was powerful. That was a great message. And what had happened in Ed's life was um, this particular pastor, he's in Colorado, hit his, uh, right before the, the tour to Israel, his house caught on fire and his entire house burnt to the ground. And then, and then shortly after, his dad passed away. And his wife was supposed to go on the tour, and she wasn't able to go. She had to stay, but Ed felt like God was still calling him to, to take the tour and, and, and go. And so he went. And then four years later, his 26-year-old son, who was a highway patrolman, died. And he lost the son. And, and the loss of a son is, and the loss of a child is, I think, one of the hardest things in life to deal with. You know, one of the most difficult things that we have to walk through in this life is the death of a child and and he experienced that and 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 he allowed the 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 seasons of discouragement and the seasons of um, brokenness to affect his life and to to change and and to mold him into into something that was 
powerfully used of God. And his heart of compassion, his heart of, of, of just, you know, what was so powerful, was so good. It was so good just to say, um, it's okay. It's okay to be um, discouraged. He even used the word um, depressed. You know, for me, it's, um, it, it was a convicting message because I, I kind of have that attitude like, you know, get a straw, suck it up, build a bridge, get over it. I, I can at times. And not, not that I, I can't have compassion for what people are going through, but, 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 but wanting to see people have victory over it because regardless whether I'm compassionate or, or not, the, the truth is still the truth, that God wants us to have victory over those things. He wants us to allow him to use those things. But here's what he wanted to say. If you're discouraged, and this one was discouragement, so um, I said the word brokenness at first, but it was discouragement. If you're discouraged, if you're depressed, that's what he said, it's okay. And he said, this is what I want to tell you if you're going through something like that. I'm sorry that you're going through that. And that it's real. And that your emotions about it are real. And that your feelings are real. You know, I tell the guys, I tell some, I tell the guys all the time, you know, and they, they come and we're talking, we're counseling and, you know, their wife is, is, is feeling a certain way and they feel like, well, it's not true. You know, that's not how I feel. And I don't do that. And I know she feels that way, but it, you know, it's that's not right. I don't feel that way. And that's not my heart. And, and I tell them, listen, her feelings are real. And it's real because she feels that way. So it, whether, whether you agree or not, or whether it's true or not, it's, it's irrelevant. If that's how she feels, it's valid. And you have to validate her feelings because she feels that way. And you have to do what it takes to minister. I saw you wives going, ha, he. Some of you guys want to get up and give knees. The elbows aren't good enough. Um, but it's true, men. You have to validate how your wife feels and that it's okay. And, and it's right because she feels that way. And, and guess what? Guess who's, whose responsibility it is to fix her if that's how she feels? It's yours. It's your call of God to love her as Christ loved the church in whatever way she's feeling. And so, and again, in, in depression and in discouragement, it's a, it's a natural season of life. You know, the powerful thing was, as he went through this, you, you know, we have all have heroes in the Bible, right? Everybody's got like that, that hero in the Bible. But as you go through, it, you'd be hard pressed to find one person in the Bible. Maybe there's a couple examples where it's not recorded, but you'd be hard-pressed to find too many people in the Bible that didn't deal with seasons of depression and discouragement. King David was was dealt with depression, and then he began to pen the Psalms. Saul was, was dealing with depression, and David would come and play beautifully for him music, and he would worship the Lord through the music, and the depression would leave. The Apostle Paul, Elijah, Jonah, all dealt with, with depression and discouragement to the point where they wanted to die. And everyone is recorded. For Paul, it's recorded in, in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 1, in verse 8. He says, I despaired even unto life. It's enough, Lord, take my life. Elijah ran 400 miles on foot running from one crazy Jezebel woman who wanted to kill him. And he ran like Forrest Gump and just didn't stop forever. And he finally got to where he was going. He said, Lord, it's enough, just take my life. He was in such despair. And Elijah is a hero of the faith. This is the same guy that was caught up in a chariot. The same guy that prayed and God brought fire down from heaven and consumed the soaking wet altar. And, and he, he went through seasons of depression and seasons of discouragement. 
And so again, if you're going through those seasons, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're facing that. I'm sorry you're going through that. It's real. But here's the deal. God, God has victory for you. And God, God wants to, you to heal. And God doesn't want to let... Listen, the, 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 the reality is not that it's not okay to go through it. What's a problem is if we make poor decisions in our discouragement and in our doubt. And where do so many people turn when they face discouragement and doubt? They turn to drugs and alcohol. They turn to the bottle and they start drinking. Right? And are you going to find uh, the answer at the bottom of the bottle or at the end of the drugs? Or You know what those things do? They help you escape reality. When you're drunk, when you're high, you don't have to, you don't have to face those hurts and those pains. They temporarily go away. And anybody who would tell you differently has never done it, doesn't understand it, and just doesn't know the truth. The truth is they are an absolute an escape from reality and they're effective. And then, and, and, but here's what happens when you come down and you start to sober up all of that pain, all of that depression, it rushes back and it rushes back with vengeance and worse and worse and worse. And so you, you get to the point where in order to numb that you have to stay inebriated 24 hours a day, seven days a week to where you're so addicted and, and life is so destroyed that, that you, you would steal from your own mom. You would leave your kids home alone to go get high when, when, when you, you need that escape from reality and, it, and, and it's just become something else. And listen, we, we can't let our discouragement and our, and not to say that maybe some of us who face discouragement and despair or depression are automatically going to go to drugs and alcohol. Maybe you don't go to drugs and alcohol, but maybe you just live a defeated life. And again, it's okay what you're going through. It's normal what you're going through. But there is a victory in it. There, there, and when you allow, with this pastor, the, the, the change that God did in his life, he wrote a book. He, he has um, an amazing ministry in Colorado and is doing amazing things for God. But, but the difference in his life is he's taken that hurt. He's taken that tragedy and that pain. And he's allowed God to use it in his life. He's allowed God to, to, to help him minister to other people through it. And again, like we started this whole thing, the, the, the challenge in this life is no matter what, Job said, the Lord, has, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. I will bless the name of the Lord. And what did Job's wife do? She came by and she said, Job, your life is hell. Curse God and die, dude. And you judge her. You judge Job's wife as being whatever, you know not a good person, not a good Christian for sure. Until you watch your wife and you watch her mom die slowly of pancreatic cancer and you watch her cry herself to sleep at night. And then you, you realize that there's, that there's, those feelings are real. And that idea of, of discouragement and depression, it's a real thing. And Christians are not um, excluded from it. We're not exempt from it. But listen, but listen, we have a God who's great. We have a God who's powerful. We have a God who heals. We have a God whose loving kindness is better than our life. And there's victory in, uh, you know, through that. And so, yeah, what's two things I'm trying to say, and I've said them enough, I've got to move on. It's okay. It's normal. And you've got to have victory over it. You've got to find a victory over it in Jesus. Amen? Okay. Then um, the next one, which I got the two words mixed up, but the next one was a season of brokenness. And, and this particular one is, I'm going to try to do this one a little bit quicker. Um, 
God desires broken people. Okay? The world doesn't like broken things. And, you know, God takes the economy and he turns it upside down. But the God loves broken things. As a matter of fact, you can't come to God unless you're broken. You, you can't be changed and used by God unless you're broken. And, and again, like I said, if, if I had a car, the world hates broken things. Completely opposite. If I had a car and I said, hey, I got a car, but it's broken. I got a broken car. Do you want to buy it? Hey, I have this really cool pottery thing that goes in the front of your house and looks really cool, but it's broken. Anybody want to buy it? Whatever I have that I try to give you or sell you, if it's broken, you don't want it. It's broken. But God doesn't want things unless they're broken. God doesn't want you and can't use you unless you're broken. And and it's illustrated all the way through the Bible. And in Psalm 51, you can turn there. Um, In Psalm 51, this message was season of brokenness. And in this season, Psalm 51 is written right after David's sin with Bathsheba. And so you guys know the story. Um, David was in the springtime when, when they normally, it was a time of peace. It was a season. David was going through a season of peace. David went through amazing seasons in his right, life, right? He's running from Absalom. He spent so much of his early life killing Goliath. He killed, the, the Bible says, when he was a young shepherd, he killed a lion and a bear, probably like 15, 16 years old. He goes and there's all these really enormous battle-tested adult soldiers that are afraid to fight Goliath. And here comes this little boy, and he goes out and he fights Goliath and chops his head off. He, he, he then runs from Saul because he didn't want to hurt the anointing of the Lord. For 10 years, he's out in the wilderness fleeing from Saul, and Saul's constantly pursuing him, trying to kill him. He goes through so many seasons in his life and, and so much victory and, and some defeat along the way and some mistakes along the way. And then everything is good. The kingdom is united. He's home. Everything's wonderful. And and because things are so good, he doesn't need to go to war this spring. He stays home. He's hanging out on the balcony and he's looking over the window and there's Bathsheba bathing. And he goes and he takes Bathsheba and and he gets her pregnant. And then he calls her husband home from battle. and, And he says, go home and be with your wife, thinking he would be with his wife. And then he would think it was his baby and would cover up the sin. And Uriah goes home. But he sleeps on the porch of his house. And David calls him back the next night and says, how come you didn't go into your wife? And he said, my men are fighting in the trenches. How could I go into my wife when my men are out in the field fighting? And so David gets him drunk, thinking if he's drunk, then then his libido will get going and he'll go home and it'll take over and, and he'll go into his wife. And David looks out that night and Uriah's sleeping on the porch because he had more character than David did at the time drunk. And David did sober. And so David calls him back and, and, and he realizes it's not going to happen. So he writes a note and he seals it with the king's seal and he hands it to Uriah. And it was, it, was a, it was a murder note that Uriah would give to the general. The general's orders were to kill Uriah. And so David has Uriah murdered. And, and then Nathan comes to David later and he says, David, he says, there's a man in your kingdom. And he's very wealthy and he has thousands of lambs and, and flocks and, 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 and his neighbor has one little ewe lamb. And the rich man was having some company and wanting to make dinner for them. And, and so instead of taking one of his own flock and his own lamb, he went next door to this man and stole that one little ewe lamb from his neighbor. And that neighbor loved that ewe lamb so much he would sleep with it at night. 
And David went, or this, this, this rich man went and stole this one little ewe lamb. And David got so angry as the king. He said, who is this man today? He shall surely die. And that's the famous line. Nathan looks at him and says, you the man now, dog. You are the man. We, we use that in a, in a good connotation nowadays. You the man. But when God wrote it, it was different. You are the man. And, and David went out and he wept bitterly. Very similar to Peter after he denied Jesus and they made eye contact and he repented. He went out and wept bitterly. And it's at this point in David's life that he writes Psalm 51 and he was broken. And we have this real heart of repentance in Psalm 51. And David says in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your trends, of your tender mercies. Blot out my trans- transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin and my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the inward and in the hidden part you will make known to me your wisdom. And so God, God needs us to be broken. It's, it's when you're broken then that God can pour out His Spirit upon you. As long as you think you, you can do it yourself and you don't need His help, and, and are not completely to a place of brokenness in your life, God can never use you. You know why people, so many people will end up in hell? Because they were never broken. And, and they never broke. You know, I prayed a sinner's prayer when I was in eighth grade, and I asked Jesus to come into my heart to be my Lord and Savior. But I didn't get saved in eighth grade. I said some words, and, and because, thank God, it wasn't, you know, witches and warlocks. It's not a special magic wizard spell that I said. And I didn't, I wasn't broken before God. I didn't surrender my heart and life to Jesus. And there's no such thing as easy believism. You know, you just say these words and then you go to heaven. It's not how it works. If you're broken before the Lord and you surrender your heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ then, and your sins are forgiven, then you go to heaven. And when I was 20 years old, I said the same exact words, same words I'm going to pray for you guys here in a few minutes. And at 20 years old, I was broken and I, and I became a born-again believer in Jesus Christ at 20 years old, saved and delivered from hell and unto heaven at 20 years old. And the difference was not the words. I said the same words. The difference was this brokenness that I had. And so we have to be broken. You guys remember Jacob? Whose name was changed to Israel? That dude was hard to break. Any of you guys ever broken in a, a, a horse or a bronco or... When I was a kid, I uh, I had to go to, well, my, my aunt and uncle at the time were living in Warrensburg, Missouri. And so we would go there in the summers. And um, I'm a city kid. Break a horse in? But my uncle had, had, had a couple horses, and he wanted me to break them in. And so my mom was throwing a fit. She would not, not, not let me go get on this horse and try to break it in. But um, she had to go eventually get her nails or hair done or something. So my uncle put me on that horse, and... The rest was history. I survived. Um, Jacob was hard to break. Matter of fact, Jacob's life is, you know, God finally had to, to 
to wrestle with him all night and he, he touched the hip the, the socket of his hip and, and deformed it and Jacob walked with the limp the rest of his life and, and, and it was at the very last stitch that he finally was broken before the Lord but in God's grace and in God's mercy God continued to, to reach out to Jacob whose name was changed to Israel until he, he reached a place of brokenness well, can you guys handle one more I know it's getting late do you need to tend, stand up spin around sit back down um that was old Sunday school trick when I was preaching too long. For the kids, that could be like five minutes. Skipping a couple of these. This one I have to do. Another another season of a shepherd um, it is a season of spiritual battles. Now, now, this one hit me really hard. This is something that's really important for our church specifically. Number one, the, the season of spiritual battles... Um, it can come in seasons and go, but it seems like it transcends all the seasons. It seems like, you know, if you're a Christian and you are constantly going to be facing spiritual battles. Now, listen, I warned you guys and I told you and, and I mean it and I want you to hear this and I want you to receive this. this is super, super important. You are going to face spiritual battles. Okay, somebody say battles. Me. Yeah, say that, me. Yes, yes. You are going to face spiritual battles. Now, not, not only just as a Christian, but this was the testimony. Uh, they didn't know who was there. It wasn't pointed at us. It wasn't to, to, to help me believe what I already believed. But we had a pastor in a regional pastor's conference with pastors from all over the United States. As I already told you, from New York to Washington and, and international pastors that are there. And this pastor gets up and he's one of the speakers. And this is what he says in the area of spiritual battle. He says that, that in the area of Christians facing spiritual battle, we all know the battles we face. And he gave multiple examples. He said, but I want to tell you this. He said, in all my years of, of, of ministry, the strongest and the worst and the harshest spiritual battles I have ever faced was when, when we started a work in Salt Lake City, Utah. He said the stronghold and the, the, the dominion and principality that's over that region it, it is, is the hardest place that we've ever had to plant and minister in. And we've ministered all over the world. We, we live in a county, you guys. We live in a state that is a spiritual stronghold. Do you realize that you would have to go to Afghanistan to find numbers like we have here in our county? We are less than 1% evangelical Christian. That doesn't exist anywhere else in the world unless you go to Afghanistan or something. It's hard. It's hard for Christian families to live here in our county. It, 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 there are, there's 40,000 people in Tooele County. And in that demographic, there are two churches like ours, evangelical Christian Bible-believing churches that, that are more than 100 people. And when they took that stat, we were one of them with 101 people and New Life was the other one. Two churches in Tooele County, evangelical Christian churches have over 100 people in them. 40,000 people here. On paper, it's less than 1% evangelical Christian. In the hometown that I come from, we're a town, the town itself is 25,000. They have some outer line communities that'll add to that number, but the town itself is 25,000 and there's 3,500 people in the church. And we have, we have two churches that have over 100 people in them that are evangelical Christian churches. I've had multiple, multiple times families. We had a family that came from Nevada. Bronson's sitting right here. 
his his in-laws or his you know they came in not his in-laws but his wife's yeah, his wife's brother and sister you guys might remember Liz and, and her family they came and um, wonderful Christian family I mean just outstanding such a such a blessing for our church you know small church and you get a, just a cool family that comes young family and they love Jesus and they they, they have gifts and ministry and and you know not not so much the guys but the girls are she, she hated it life was so hard here so many battles with her kids and spiritual battles, the same battles that Lydia and I are facing, the same battles I talked to you guys about. We're facing really, it's a, hard, it's a hard place to be a Christian. It really is. There's a ton of nepotism that goes on and we don't exactly fit in around here. But you know what? It, it, it's, it's a battle. It's, it's, it's a real battle. And that, that's a testimony from a guy who, who wasn't, like I said, he wasn't speaking that to me or about me. He spoke that to the conference and it was a real testimony from his heart, his understand, his what he's experienced. And we're living in a place that faces serious, real, spiritual battles. And and with that family that I was talking about, they ended up going back. They, they moved here for a while and just decided, you know what, it's it's too hard. It's hard for our kids and we hate it. And, and that's just one example. And, and there was another. We have multiple. We had another family come from Wyoming. He, he got a job in, in Salt Lake City. They ended up here in Tooele to be out and started coming to church. We're serving God. They were Christians. You know, you always tell when people come for the first time to our church, you know, I'm trying to figure out, were they former LDS? Are they still LDS? Are they Christian? But if they show up with the Bible on the first Sunday, I'm thinking, okay, that's good. They, they're, they're, they, maybe they're Christian, you know, and so, you know, showed up with their Bibles and marked up Bibles and, um, you know, six months. Just crying every day. Kids hated it. Anybody want to move to 12? <laughs> Am I making a case? All right, I'm not trying to make case how terrible it is. I, this is what I'm trying to make case. This is what I want to ask you guys, too. And we're going to close with this. And I, one more thing, and we're going to close. Um, w- I want you to understand that, really, we're facing spiritual battles. If you find yourself planted here as an evangelical Christian, ha- listen, the, the blessing is, I was, I was under some spiritual attacks recently, and out of the blue, I just get the nastiest, hateful phone call. I don't even know why I answered the phone. I wish I'd let those go to voice voicemail and... You know, Satan's on the other end in the form of some, like, 40-year-old man. And he's telling me how terrible I am and my wife is and how evil we are. And blah, 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 blah. And I'm trying to talk him off the ledge. And, and he's just spewing hate and evil. And so, you know, it was lies. And, and, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm bigger than that. Like, it's okay. Like, whatever his experience. And everybody said was true. No matter how many lies it was, it still hurts. And it's still difficult. And... And it just, but I know I kind of been around enough that I, I always chalk those things up. That's a spiritual battle. That's a spiritual fight. I got to fight this in the spirit. And, and, but I was a little under it that day and I was bummed out and, um, it was just hard to, I was having a hard time kicking it and, you know, and, and this, this feeling of thankfulness came over and that, that's what helped me get through it. And I was thinking of the Lord, I said, Lord, thank you that I'm in a place that, you know, I, thank God I can be a full-time missionary in a really hard place and I don't got to go to like a hut in Africa to do it. I can live in a really nice neighborhood in a really nice house and, you know, drive a nice car on a paved road and, and still be on the frontline mission somewhere. Praise God. Thank God that I have a mission field that for every person that's Christian, 99 need Jesus. Now, if I can't like tell one or two of them about Jesus, then what am I doing? Right. Or what are we doing as a people? We, you, you guys have a mission field 99 to one. So for every one of you, there's 99 people out there that need Jesus. So get out there and get them. Get out there and tell them about Jesus. But but it is a battle. And, 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 and just knowing that for me, and for some of us, it's different. For these families, I try to encourage them. to like, don't leave. Like, we need you. Like, God has called you here. Come here and help us. 
We're, we're in a place that we, we, we need to reach this county for Jesus. You know, if, if this place explodes and if the gospel explodes in this county, guess what's going to happen? It's going to start to snowball. And when that snowball starts rolling downhill, it's going to be huge. And God's going to do something. And that light's going to shine so bright in a dark place. But it takes people that are called to come and be a part and serve and, and, and reach this dark place with the love of Jesus Christ. We can't have people running back where they came from all the time because they're afraid of a little spiritual battles. We're going to face battles, but he that is in us is greater than he is in the world. I read the last chapter. We win. Satan loses, and we, we, you know, we kick his butt in the end. And praise God that we're, we're in a spiritual battle, in a spiritual stronghold, and, and we serve in a place where, where you know, we can just love Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's have the worship team come up. All right, hey, I can't, I can't close without just telling you one little highlight from the best pastor that was at this conference. It's this pastor from this little old church in uh, somewhere up in northern Utah called Tooele. He goes by the name of Pastor Chris. And uh, so I, I got to tell you just real quick. This, this, you know, we go, to, we go to a retreat. You guys have been to men's retreats, women's retreats, leadership conferences. You know what I'm talking about. If you go to a spirit-led, a spirit conference, hopefully you go. And we went with this expectation. Like, God, hey, we, we, we're asking. We, we had all the guys come up right here last week. You guys remember? We laid hands on them. We prayed for them. That God would show up and just do something supernatural. That God would bless. And so was asking God to do something like that for each one of us. And, um, and, and God spoke to me. And, and it's not something that I don't already know intellectually. So many times, you know, in marriage, in life, and in ministry, it's not that God needs to tell you something you didn't know. God needs to remind you to do something that you already knew, to, to empower you, to encourage you to do something that you already knew. And, and this is a truth that I already knew, but God reminded me while I was there this week. And, you know, I had a time of, of just seeking the Lord, and God was speaking, and I, and I began to weep because God spoke to me, and he asked me this question. After I was done, I was telling my brother what happened. And, and my brother, who's going to be here next week, he, he, he told me that God asked him the same exact question a week earlier. And, and God said to me at the conference, do you love me? And I began to weep because I had to say, no, I like you. I agape you, but I, I can't, I wouldn't be honest if I, if I, you know, if I could say, Lord, I love you. I agape you because agape is not an emotion. My emotion agape is God. I want to agape God, but agape and God, loving God is, is, is an action. What do you do with your life? What do you do with your Monday, your Tuesday, your day-to-day life? Do you live your life constantly for Jesus? And what you do might affect somebody else's eternity and where someone's going to spend. And, and do you live every day for Jesus? And, and if I really, really could say to the Lord, Lord, yes, I, I agape you. It would show in my actions. And Lord, just again, challenging me and telling me that, that, that my success in ministry in life and for our church is, is people that love Jesus. And, and it's not about aesthetics and all those things that we try to do in church to make it pleasing for everybody. Really, you want, you want us to grow? You want us to be an amazing church that just really catches fire in our county? Let, let's get a bunch of people that just really love Jesus and, and fall in love with Jesus and everybody's life's going to change. Because we're going to want to see God do something amazing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. With all your eyes closed, your heads bowed, I'm going to ask you to take little steps of faith. The first one is going to be just to just to raise your hand. And, the, you know, we, we don't have an easy believism.
And it takes steps of faith. It takes steps of faith, little steps of faith that are going to grow. And the first one is if, if you're in here today and, 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 and maybe you need to just say to the Lord, Lord, I, I want to get saved. You don't know if you're a Christian and you want to ask the Lord in your heart to be your Lord and Savior for the first time or, or just to make sure you know that you're saved. I want to ask you to raise your hand. And then if you're in here now and, and, and maybe you, you know you're born again, but you, you want to love Jesus. You want to serve Jesus. You want to get your life right with Jesus. Maybe you're just not walking right. You want to, you want to grow in your walk with Jesus. I want to ask you to raise your hand. Amen, amen. God bless you guys. God bless you guys. You can put your hand down. I'm going to pray for you guys. And if you raised your hand, just agree with me in prayer. Father, we come before you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for everybody who's in here today, God. Lord, I thank you for those that that made decisions for Christ. And Lord, I pray that there would be feet on their faith. And Lord, that they will walk out their Christian life. And and Lord, I I, I pray, Father, that that they would grow and continue to take steps of faith. Lord, I pray for those that that raise their hand to say they just want to grow in you. They want to fall in love with Jesus. Lord, that, that you would pour out your spirit upon them. And that, Lord, again, that we would put feet to our faith that the rubber would meet the road. And Lord God, that we would not just just say we love you, but that we would actually live a life that shows we love you. And so, Lord, I thank you, Lord, for each brother and sister that's in here. I pray, Lord, for all those that are going through any kind of discouragement, depression, um, whatever season they're in, Lord. Uh, I just, Lord, want to love them right now, Lord. I want to ask that you would love them, Lord, that you would touch them, God. You would encourage them. Lord, help them to know that it's okay what they're going through. But God, you want to give them victory and you want to help them and you want to be with them and you want to love them through this. And now I just want to pray. I want to ask the entire church to pray out loud and repeat this with me. And if if you mean this in your heart, then God will answer this prayer. And again, it's about being broken. It's not about the words. It's about a condition of your heart. If you really want to surrender your heart and life to Jesus, say these prayers. And I ask the whole church to pray out loud just so that that, that we, we don't single anybody out or embarrass anybody. Dear Lord Jesus. Please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. I give you my life. I'm broken before you. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you guys.